you just see people look at the cabinet and their faces just light up and I love seeing that at my own shop as well people just people just love food and they love to eat um, and creating stuff that people can really get into and really enjoy and savor is is really what it's all about for me this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep Passion is an over-familiar term about one's commitment to an interest, but there are a few industries where passion suits more than it does in hospitality. After earning your stripes, the chance to fulfil a dream is very real, and it's exactly what makes the sector so inspiring and colourful. Georgia McAllister Forte is the owner of Monforte Venuazari in Carlton North. Georgia, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's good to get you on the show. You've uh, a couple of years ago, you created your very own little business. What's it been like the last couple of years? Uh, it's been great, actually. Um, we opened actually during peak lockdown um, in 2020. I think that was kind of the at the worst of it. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to go um, and had kind of planned to be working at my old job at All Are Welcome alongside Monforte for at least the first year. Um, and then we kind of opened and out of nowhere, um, we had massive queues and lots of people being really enthusiastic about what we were doing and um, it kind of just grew from there. So I think I was really lucky um, in that respect that we got off quite lightly. Well, you've created something really special there. Take us back to those moments. I mean, opening at that per- in that period of time, especially in Melbourne, which experienced incredible lockdowns, what was the build-up like? Um, it was quite hectic. So, um, I mean, we'd been pl- I'd been planning Monforte um, and kind of talking to my partner about it for a long time, um, not really entirely sure of the iteration that it would take. And originally, pre-COVID, uh, my intention was to do markets and events um, with a Piaggio Ape, which is like those little three-wheel trikes with a, a scooter engine in them. Um, you see them a lot more over Europe than you do over here. So it was looking to be quite the project. Um, and then when COVID hit, I was quite down because it felt like it put my plans on hold a bit. Um, and on my way to work, I used to pass where Cafe Boo used to be, which is where the shop is now. Um, and I remember a few years before having said to my partner when we went for breakfast there, oh, this makes such an amazing bakery. It would be so fun. Um, and then I would find myself on the rides to work at the start of COVID passing, um, the cafe and it was always closed and it had never gone up for lease as far as I knew. And I didn't realize they'd closed for good. Um, but I used to pass it on my way to work and just think, Oh, I wonder what's going on. And I keep my eye on it. And eventually I built up the courage to contact the owner of the property who was also the owner of the cafe previously, um, and asked if she would be open to having a chat about me subleasing it or leasing it from her. Um, and so we kind of got into it that way. And I went for a chat with her, um, which was originally, according to my partner, just going to be a very casual chat to find out what the terms might be. Um, and we, we were there for about half an hour and she kind of just offered it to me because I was asking just for a, a six month lease to kind of test the waters, which worked really fine for her. Um, and I went back home really excited because she just offered me this six month lease. And my partner was like, what? But, but we haven't talked about this. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't care. I'm going to have a bakery. <laughs> um, 
And so from there, it was just uh, lots of work on getting the numbers right and the projections. Um, we had to go in, we kind of painted the shop to give it a bit of a refresh. Um, I had to get three-phase power installed, which was quite uh, daunting peak COVID when City Power were kind of a bit behind and not doing as much work. Um, so that took a little while. Um, there were a few late nights where we were in there kind of edging towards the start of curfew, which seems really surreal now. Um, and we'd have to kind of pack up really quickly and run home and you'd start hearing the helicopters overhead, which again, sounds really odd looking back at it now. <laughs> um, and we'd dash back home just in the nick of time. So, um, yeah, it was quite, it was a big build up, and it was quite stressful but in a really fun and slightly chaotic way you mentioned that you had thought about it for a while but you weren't entirely sure what it would end up being did, did that period of time with COVID did that speak to sort of the sort of offering that you started with slightly I think the um the space itself spoke to the offering more um in terms of it being it's a, it's a 10 meter square space um and I really wanted to do Vinoiserie, which takes up quite a bit of space. So, um, and we were also starting on a budget. So initially I didn't, I couldn't afford a prover. So I was just doing an ambient proof overnight for the pastries to rise before they get baked. Um, and so having the limited space um, and knowing that I had to work within that and knowing that I eventually, if I was to take on staff, wouldn't be able to have that many of them. Um, it was that that kind of meant I had to really limit the options that I had for customers and because of that make them really good because there's no room for error when you're not offering a lot. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of the big one, but I knew it was going to be Vinoiserie based over anything else. But tell us a bit about Vinoiserie. What does it, what does it mean? Uh, so it, it basically means Viennese pastries, but it's largely um, made up of laminated doughs. So, um, or you might also have kind of yeasted doughs as well, like brioches. Uh, you would have laminated brioches um, and laminated croissants, puff pastry, all, the, all those kind of things. Um, so that it's kind of a collective term for all those things, largely breakfast-based items. I want to explore what you're doing there and the incredible success and cues out the door that you have there. But um, take us back to when you were young. What sort of role did food play in your family? So, oddly enough, we were never much of a baking family. I didn't do a ton of baking as a child. Um, but both my parents love food um, and they were always cooking from scratch. Um, my mum has Italian Swiss heritage um, and my dad is Scottish. And so uh, I remember when I was really young on Sundays, my dad would take us out to um, like kids gym and we'd go and do that and then come back and mum would have made a big pot of sugo um, and we'd have big bowls of pasta as our Sunday lunch instead of having a Sunday roast. Um, and so that was always kind of the forefront. We always ate together. Um, it was never like kind of TV dinners or anything like that. Mum would always make our birthday cakes. Um, and so that was really enjoyable. And as I got older and into my teenage years um, and I became more interested in food, when mum had the sugo going, if I was in the house, I'd kind of taste it and start tinkering. And she never knew um, until years later and I let slip and she was like, I had no idea that you did that. And she, I couldn't tell if she was upset or kind of quietly impressed. Um, but yeah, she had no idea. Um and then with dad, he would always be trying new recipes out. He loves cooking, loves uh, 
exploring new recipes and we go out to eat quite a lot when I'm with him as well. So um, not we're not a chefy family, um, but we did always love food. And then on my mom's side as well, her, um, her father owns an ice cream parlor which was also part of our history. Um, growing up, we had the old ice cream menu on the on the kitchen wall, um, and I've still got the Forte's ice cream coops in in my kitchen now. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a mishmash. Tell us about the first sort of steps into a commercial kitchen. What were the first experiences for you? Um, I actually was very lucky in that uh, we had a family friend, David Eyre, who owned a, a Portuguese restaurant in London um, called the Eyre Brothers. And when he found out that I wanted to be a chef when I was about 12 years old, he invited me into the kitchen to do a few days um, at my own leisure uh, during half term. So I would go in and he taught me to make uh, salt cod croquettes and um all these kind of different things and taught me what it's like to be in a kitchen. And I absolutely loved it. So that was kind of my first, um, I guess my first time in a, in a big commercial space and seeing what it was like. Um, and from there I kind of decided why well, I really want to be a pastry chef, uh, despite having not really done any baking <laughs> in my life at that stage. Um, and so I, I kind of started uh, trade school um, and went to work at Hicks, uh, Oyster and Chop House, which was Mark Hicks's first restaurant in Farringdon, um, and worked on pastry there um, and kind of learned a lot of the basics. So lots of um, pie pastry. We did ice creams and tarts and all that kind of thing. And it was, re- it was a really fun environment to be in. Um, and that was kind of where I first learned about seasonality and provenance. Um, they were really strong in that area. Um, I mean, they would sometimes change the menu twice a day, depending on what the suppliers were able to bring. Um, so that was really interesting to see the creativity that comes from that. Um, and I really enjoyed being there. And then my next, uh, next job was at the boundary in Shoreditch. Um, and that was completely different. I mean, they were still focused on really good ingredients and high quality, but it was all very heavily French style stuff, which I'd not really been exposed to before in my cooking life. Um, and that was really interesting to learn to make souffles and use different equipment and work in a slightly larger, maybe more regimented kitchen. Um, and it was, it was a great experience, but it, I found it quite stressful. And that was kind of when I decided that I wasn't really keen on being in a service kitchen. Um, and I had a couple of people suggest that I should get in touch with Claire Patak, who owns Violet, which at the time was quite small and had uh, just the market stall and the little cake shop. Um, and so I got in touch with her and I was lucky enough that she was looking for a pastry chef at the time. Um, and so I got to, got to go there and, and that was kind of the start of my bakery life. What was it about pastry that, that intrigued you at, at such a young age? Um, sort of the mystery at the time, I didn't know anything about it. Um, I used to get actually quite intimidated when I'd tell people I wanted to be a pastry chef and they were like, oh, it's really hard. You've got to be so precise. Um, and I can be quite an anxious person. So that would really freak me out. But I just never told anyone that it freaked me out. I was just like, right, I'm just going to get on with it and see what happens. Um, but I just love, it is exacting. It is, you, you do have to be really accurate, but it's also challenging in that there are so many variables you're constantly problem solving and you're constantly working to make it better because you can see visually 
very clearly how it could be better and how, um, you know, where you might have gone wrong or where this stage could be improved or that stage can be improved. Um, it really kind of keeps you on your toes, but you can be uh, really creative with it as well. You mentioned uh, you took the position at Violet with uh, Claire Patak. Is there anything from that period of time that you made a lot of or that you made for the first time that really sticks with you? Uh, Lots and lots of cakes. I really learned so much about baking cupcakes, um, whole cakes, decorating cakes. um, And that was was so fun to do. Um, I'd never worked somewhere um, where we'd done decorated cakes before. And it was she has a really simple, clean style, but it it's it's kind of her style where she stops decorating a cake is where lots of people will start tidying it up. Um, and she just made it look so pretty and the way that it's supposed to, you know, she she just took those cakes and thought, This this looks a bit better. It's it's maybe slightly less polished, but it looks really beautiful in its own right. Um, and so learning how to decorate a cake in that way was, was wonderful and really fun. Um, so we did lots of that and then also learning, I suppose, uh, to cook a bit more simply, not everything has to be really technical and really complicated and have lots of steps. Um, you can really just let the food speak for itself, which was really great to learn. With those experiences, um, baking cakes, what, for you, what, what makes a great cake? It just has to be delicious. Um, Obviously, it helps when it looks great, but I think a lot of people get caught up in making things look really polished and this finish and this finish and this glaze and all that kind of stuff. And really, you just want something that's going to be great to eat. Um, I think not having the ability to kind of take a step back and say, I'm not going to add all these things that might make it look amazing. Um, I'm just going to let the, the cake itself be what it is um i think that's that's really the the most important thing to me i think it just has to be delicious <laughs> what led to the move to australia um it was a little bit of a sporadic decision um i'd come to melbourne when i was 18 just by myself on holiday um i'd worked with a chef who was from here and she was like oh i think you'd really like melbourne um so I came when I was 18 and kind of explored and quite liked it. Um, and then when I was a bit older, I think I moved here when I was 21. Um, I just wanted to get out of the UK, see a bit more of the world, travel a little bit. Um, and that was my intention with Melbourne was to come and work for six months and then travel for six months and then go back home. Um, and it just, it didn't pan out that way. I I really liked it here and made lots of friends and kind of set down roots. Um, and it's where I've been ever since. Tell us a bit about your time, um, working in Melbourne. What's been sort of the really key venues and people as you built your career? Probably the, the biggest key venue was All A Welcome. Um, when I first moved here, I kind of bounced around different cafes, but they weren't really, I wasn't doing anything pastry centric. Um, and a friend put me in touch with Boris, um, one of well, the owner of All A Welcome before he had opened it and said, oh, I, I know this guy, Boris, he's really lovely. He is um, setting up a bakery uh, next year. I'll put you in touch. And so I got in touch with Boris and um, the timing worked out really well. He was working to kind of start trialing stuff. So the first few months um there we were trialing stuff from his home um 
which was a lot of fun. Um, great to get to know him and, and to know the kind of cooking that he does. Um, and then I kind of helped set up the bakery from even before they opened. I was there building the, the racks for all the trays to go on and um, seeing lots of equipment come in and just seeing everything firsthand, how, how a bakery comes together. Um, so I think that was quite formative to see all of that and know what goes into it. Um, Because quite often you miss that as an employee. Do you have any stories of what it was like working with Boris of sort of moments in time that really sort of affected your trajectory? Definitely learning Vinoiserie from the beginning. So prior to that, I hadn't really done any Vinoiserie. Um, I knew about it, but I had never really fallen into it and never sought it out. Um, so going into that from the beginning and he and I were kind of troubleshooting together and we went through rounds and rounds and rounds of test bakes and they were coming out flat and they were doing this and that over developing, underdeveloping, um, and really trying to find that sweet spot and having someone do that with me who hadn't necessarily done a lot of it himself before, um, I think really helped me. It was, there were times when it was quite stressful, um, because you just so badly wanted to get it right. Um, but having someone along there with you for the ride was great. And um, I got to see every day was an improvement. Every day things got better. We were able to be a bit more creative. Once the pastry was kind of exactly where we wanted it to be, then we could start looking at flavors and different shape products. And for Boris and I at the beginning in particular, we focused a lot on trying different shapes with the Vinoiserie and seeing what worked and what didn't. So there was lots of trial and error, but it was nice in that, you were allowed to do that. You were allowed to make mistakes. And um, I think that really helped me and helped my confidence in, in Vinoiserie because I'd never done it before and I didn't really know what to expect. What was the real success from that sort of trial and error period of, for you guys? Was there a product that you landed on that you really nailed that you can tell us about? Um, it re- I mean, there were so many different things that we did. I think getting just our, our standard croissant right from the get-go was took quite a long time and then once we sort of nailed that we moved on to uh we developed the hachapuri pastry um which was still with croissant dough but we added the filling and getting that right and kind of fine-tuning that um we did laminated brioche as well so uh we kind of had to develop morning buns and different iterations of that that might have different fillings um so there were kind of lots of different things that we were just doing one at a time. Once we felt like we'd got that right, we would move on to the next one. Um, so we were kind of constantly in development. There aren't many people that don't like a croissant. Tell, tell us a little bit about what, you know, the process and what makes a, a perfect one. I think uh, particularly for us and uh, from when I started Monforte, the big thing for me was the butter that we use. Um, I think, honestly, that's really what's made our croissant and we have used the same butter from the beginning um we use lardas uh butter which is produced in the bellarine peninsula so it's quite local to melbourne um it's cultured so it's got a really like really well developed flavor it really just tastes like the butter of your dreams um and to be able to use that in our croissants it just behaves exactly as you need it to which is great because it can be quite hard to find a butter if it's not produced I mean, the French do pastry butter really well where it's um, – 
the structure is such that it won't shatter in the dough. It kind of, when it softens, it doesn't just melt. And when it's cold, it doesn't just harden and shatter within the dough, which can happen quite a lot with um, particularly specialty butters. Um, and we've never had a problem with lardos. And so using that from the beginning, I think, has really given our croissants the edge um, and has just made them so delicious and so Moorish. So I would say definitely the butter and kind of the... Um, all the ingredients is what really makes it. Monforte was a long-held dream of yours to open one day. What was it like when you finally opened the doors? Um, quite overwhelming in a really good way. We, um, <laughs> I mean, it was one of those things where you feel like you, you never have quite enough time to test things, and particularly when you're, you've spent all this money and you're, you know that you just need to start making it back, but you also want to get everything right from the beginning. And as much as you know it's always going to be a journey and things are going to improve over long periods of time, you want to get it as right as possible from the beginning. So that was, that was huge. And I ended up with not a huge amount of time to, to trial stuff before we opened, but, um, it was great. People were really receptive and it was nice having those first few weekends. Initially we were only open Friday and Saturday, um, mornings. So it was good to have the first few more, uh, weekends where, it was a little bit quieter. We had a few locals dropping by and coming through and just wanting to see what this new thing was on the corner um, of one of their local streets. And after that, when it started picking up steam, I think uh, Pat Nurse was one of the first people to post about us who had kind of quite big credentials in the food scene in Melbourne. Um, and I remember just being so overwhelmed. I kind of welled up a little bit because I was – essentially living my dream, which a lot of people aren't lucky enough to get to do. And I just count myself so lucky that I was able to do it um, and to have such a great reception as well. What surprised you about running your own business? Um, it sounds really silly. I mean, lots of people who own small businesses throughout my life told me not to do it kind of in a, in a bit of a jokey way, just kind of, it's really hard. Don't do it. You'd be crazy to do it. Um, and I think Aaron from every day, I remember when we were opening all the welcomes said, he kind of said that as well. And I said, yeah, people have said that to me a lot over the years, but it hasn't changed my mind. And he was like, right, well, if it hasn't changed your mind, then you definitely should do it because it's not going to go, that feeling's not going to go away. Um, and I always remembered that. Um, but I think there's always things that you think you know, and you don't. There's always things in a small business that happen that you don't expect or um, you haven't seen coming. And it just, it's so different from being an employee where, um, you know, you've got your own workload, but you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and finally, knowing what goes on behind the scenes, there's so much more to it. It's really quite a meaty task um, because you've got all your admin stuff, you've got kind of ingredients and stock to manage the products themselves once you have staff as well. It was really important to me to, to connect with my staff and for them to feel like I'm there. So at times you're also, you kind of need to help guide them and really be there for them and be a support system. So you really, it's almost like having a parental role in a way, which I wasn't expecting. I thought, you know, you just kind of, you have staff and you get on with them and they know what their task is and, um, you will just kind of get on with it. And it's a lot more involved than that. And I really enjoy that. Um, but there's there's just a lot more to it than I expected. 
You mentioned a little earlier about um, discovering the importance of seasonality. How does that work with what you do and, and the pastries? So we, I mean, from our, we have, I think, seven or eight products uh, week to week, of which two stay the same. So our plain croissant and our honey and sea salt croissant, everything else changes uh, every three weeks to four weeks. Um, and for those ones, we really rely on things that we know are coming in. So particularly with fruit and vegetables for our um, fruit-based pastry and our savory pastries, um, we really rely on our suppliers to tell us what's coming in, what's good. And you get quite detailed forecasts from the smaller scale suppliers. So um, places, suppliers that work closely with the farms themselves can tell you this is coming in, uh, this is slowly coming in, but it's not quite right yet. We'll let you know when it's really good and then you can kind of implement that into your menu. So um, we rely a lot on that and kind of what's most available at the time. Um, there are some things as well, like during summer, obviously in Melbourne there are fig trees all over the place. So things like that, you can kind of see them coming in and um, it's really good to kind of pay a lot more attention to what's around you rather than just blindly following recipes and uh, things that you've always done it's it gives you a bit more of a chance to learn what goes on beyond your own bubble you mentioned um the two croissants which are um a staple on the menu what's some of the other things that you have at the moment that you can tell us about that sort of speaks of what you're doing so we have um our savory uh, vegetarian pastry at the moment is a trapea onion agrodolce which uh, Trapea onions are an Italian variety. They're quite sweet um, and they have just come into season in the last couple of weeks. Um, and we roast them with a little bit of vinegar and some sugar um, to bring out the sweetness, but also so they have a little bit of a tang and it's not quite that overwhelming sweetness that sometimes you get with roasted onions. Um, and then we have those on a pastry with uh, an alpine cheese custard and summer leaves. So depending on what the suppliers have week to week, those leaves change a little bit. Um, at the moment, we have lots of watercress. We have some frisé lettuce. Um, we've got some shiso, and we kind of toss all of that together in a really light uh, salad. And we've got a um, – we had salted some yuzus back in June last year uh, when they were in season and then infused them into vinegar. So we're dressing the, the leaves with a yuzu vinegar as well, which is delicious. Um, yeah. <laughs> So that's probably a favorite at the moment. That sounds amazing. Take us into the kitchen. How does it make you feel when you're baking? It's great. It's um it's got some normalcy now, which is which is really good. Um there's a lot to kind of manage when you go in. You've got to check the pastries as soon as you get there and see do they need a bit longer proving? Are they ready to go in the oven now? Um so it's it's a lot of like uh managing your time really well. Um, but it's great to just kind of get lost in it and you, the way that our bakery is set up, we just have the one person baking in the morning. Um, and I really enjoy having that time on my own in the morning to kind of just settle into the day. Um, it's a good chance to see, particularly if you've been on production the day before where you've been laminating and shaping to see the end result of what you've made and what you've spent all this time doing. Um, and that's kind of your, that's your point to be like, okay, so how could this be better tomorrow? Do we need to adjust anything? Um, and I think it's, it's great. It feels really good to have that involvement in the recipe itself um, and all the steps throughout. It really makes you a better pastry chef, I think. 
You opened in the throes of COVID, but um, now things are opening up and feels like we're heading back to some sort of normality um, and leaving that behind us. Is is that giving you an opportunity to explore new things or look at the business differently? Yeah, a little bit. So we, um, throughout COVID, were, were super busy. We had queues out the door and now we've got a much more regular trade because people are going back to work. So we get more of a rush in the morning and then it's quite steady throughout the rest of the day. Um so that kind of gives us a chance to trial things a little bit further than we were previously where um, you were so limited on time, you didn't really get to do that as much. So we have a lot of fun trialing stuff. Um, we work on maybe two or three different products at a time. Um, so that's really fun. And then we're kind of looking at how I'm starting to look at how the shop might run a bit better. Can we extend our hours? Um, is there a way to kind of streamline the production, produce a little bit more or produce a little bit more variety and really question what the customers would like to see more of. Um, because now it's not so rushed. We've got time to look at all of that sort of stuff and see kind of interact with the customers and see what they thought of this product and that product. Um, so that's really fun. Um, and the last few, probably the last two or three months we've been working on soft serve ice cream, which has been, great and has kind of taken me back to when I was learning about vinoiserie for the first time. There are so many variables that you have to think about because we're not just using mix from a packet that we've bought from some distant supplier somewhere, um, but we're using fresh milk, fresh cream um, and blending the whole custard ourselves. And so that's been really interesting because I've gone back to learning and kind of going and not knowing anything. Um, so having COVID not kind of hanging over our heads we've been able to explore that and get really get really deep into that which has been great well you've uh, ful fulfilled a, a long-term dream to open your own little business and creating something really special for people in melbourne what what do you love about what you do it just makes people so happy um and I remember this from Violet. We had, it was an open kitchen. So the kitchen was in the main space of the cafe and you'd see the customers come in. Um, and you just see people look at the cabinet and their faces just light up. And I love seeing that at my own shop as well. People just, people just love food and they love to eat um, and creating stuff that uh, people can really get into and really enjoy and savor is, is really what it's all about for me. Well, Georgia, it's an absolute honour to have you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear a little bit of your story. Congratulations on what you've built and um, look forward to catching up again sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been really fun. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.